Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Welcome everyone, it's Michael McNutt with Weedy. Regulations, innovation, emerging technologies. There's a lot going on in healthcare right now. How are these initiatives affecting the end user, the patient? From our Spring 2023 conference, we welcomed patient advocate leadership from major organizations to discuss what healthcare nirvana would look like and how close is the work of payers, providers, and vendors to hitting that target. Our host for the session, patient advocate, healthcare influencer, and host of the High Tea podcast, Grace Vinton. Hello, Weedy. Welcome to the Patient Advocate Roundtable. We have an incredible group of patient advocate leaders from major organizations here to discuss all things patient experience nirvana. I'd like to introduce you to our roundtable participants who will offer up a quick introduction. Let's start with Anna Hyde, who is a Vice President of Advocacy and Access at the Arthritis Foundation. Anna? Hi, everybody. Grateful to be here. I've uh, done a few panels in the past with Weedy, and I always get something out of it. Um, but I'm, as Grace said, Anna Hyde with the Arthritis Foundation. I've been here about nine years and, and really um, looking forward to the panel discussion. Thank you so much, Anna. So great to have you here. And I'd love to introduce now Andrew Sholnick, who is the Government Affairs Director at the AARP. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew. Hi, again, Andrew Sholnick with AARP. I'm in the Government Affairs Department. Um, Most people think of AARP as discounts for old people, but really we do a lot more to try to help older Americans live their best life. And one of the things that we're happy to be engaged on is developing basically technology from the ground up with older Americans in mind. So I'd like to just give a little plug to some of the work that we're doing that you might not be aware of, which is built around age-friendly technology design. And hopefully if you know somebody on this uh, call or listening in is a developer or building a product or an interface or portal um, for consumers, they'll think hard about how older Americans use that product. And ARP can help you with that. We have people here on staff and a unit called our Age Tech Collaborative that can help early stage developers and startups, as well as if you already have a product, but you wanna refine it or make it more useful to older Americans, you know, please reach out to one of my colleagues, Michael Phillips, whose contact information is shown here too. Um, we want to be the resource to everybody to really help build uh, that ecosystem for products and technology with health IT and older Americans in mind. That's awesome, Andrew. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. And we're excited to get your insight today. Uh, now, Melissa Williams, she's the Director of Grassroots Advocacy and Partnerships at the National Patient Advocate Foundation. We'd love to hear your background as well, Melissa. Thank you so much, Grace, and hello, everyone. Um, As Grace mentioned, uh, my name is Melissa Williams, and I am the Director of Grassroots Advocacy and Partnerships at National Patient Advocate Foundation. And I'm just going to take a little bit of time here to explain what National Patient Advocate Foundation is and Patient Advocate Foundation, um, because most people um, are probably hearing about us for the first time, and that's okay. Um, So National Patient Advocate Foundation uh, represents the voices of patients and families coping with complex and chronic conditions. Um, Our mission is to elevate those voices to improve how we all experience healthcare. Um, or the advocacy affiliate of Patient Advocate Foundation. And Patient Advocate Foundation uh, provides direct services um, to patients and caregivers across the country. We have navigators or case managers, as they're called, um, over at PAF. Um, We have case managers there who 
provide these services to patients, caregivers by phone um, and address any sort of financial hardships or obstacles to care that result from a diagnosis. And the experiences reported um, from people served through Patient Advocate Foundation really guide our policy and advocacy work. And so the infographic um, there on the right really shows our priority areas. Uh, we advocate for navigating people to safety net programs that support their financial and social needs. Uh, we advocate for ensuring that access to affordable coverage and care is available to everyone. Uh, we want person-centered services, including um, digital health and health um, information technology, to be person-centered. And um, we really believe that there's an opportunity there to improve patient caregiver quality of life by making it person-centered. Um, and lastly, we advocate for communication and coordination that prioritizes people's needs and make them partners in care planning. And so we wouldn't really be able to do any of our work without the, insight, without the insights of patients and patient advocates. And so I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation today. We're thrilled that you're going to offer up your perspective with us today, Melissa. Thanks so much for being here. And now I'd like to introduce Nicole Purcell, who's the Senior Director of Clinical Practice at the Alzheimer's Association. Hello, everyone. I am really excited to be here as well. Um, I'm uh, currently a, still a practicing neurologist where I do inpatient medicine, outpatient medicine. I do teleneurology. Um, in my work with the Alzheimer's Association, I am the Senior Director of Clinical Practice, which means I educate. And the Alzheimer's Association as a whole, we are a worldwide voluntary health organization that is dedicated to Alzheimer's care, support and research, and actually dementias overall. It's not just Alzheimer's care. But really, our mission is to lead the way to end Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. And I do want to take a minute um, to just bring your attention to um, with our discussion when talking about older individuals and the challenges that they may have with navigating a healthcare system or navigating technology integrated into a healthcare system. When you add a degenerative brain disorder on top of those challenges, it really makes uh, it more difficult for our constituents to navigate those fields. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion uh, today and see what we can do to help our older individuals. So great to have you here, Dr. Nicole. So let's dive in. Our first topic of discussion is seeking patient experience. What does healthcare technology patient experience nirvana look like? In 2017, I nearly lost my life after having my third child due to one misdiagnosis after another misdiagnosis caused by healthcare record fragmentation. Um, so I've really spent a lot of my time in my life trying to, to have the patient experience be the best it possibly can because when you're going through this experience, it's traumatic. It changes your life. It changes your care partners' lives. It changes the lives of your children. It's hugely impactful. And so now I really want to start by asking, what does healthcare technology patient experience nirvana look like? And how close are we? Let's start with Melissa. Thank you so much for, first of all, for just sharing a little bit of your experience um, and that fragmentation with medical records is actually where I'm going. 
for patients, I feel like what that nirvana could look like is patients having the access, owning their own medical records, not having to go from doctor to doctor, wondering whether or not something was communicated or if something got into their portal. Um, it would be amazing if, you know, we could be all, or most of us have smartphones carrying our own medical records on our phones and bringing that to the doctor's office where we would need to be seen. I think that can go a long way into achieving what that nirvana could look like. Um, but I think most importantly, when we're thinking about technology, um, I think it has to it has to make our lives patient lives in particular um it has to make their lives easier they're dealing with so much already um it can't be something that's going to make things a little more complicated or require some learning curve it has to be intuitive it has to um be helpful so many times patients are just looking for resources and they don't know where to go um if we can have technology that can help with that i think would be incredibly um just empowering for the patients because oftentimes they don't feel like they're in a position of power um and yeah i think there's there's a whole lot more but i wanted to i'll pause there to mm. let my fellow panelists um also chime in but it does oh. seem the diagnostic odyssey is so stressful. And then once you are diagnosed, you're left without any support. And so that absolutely seems like it'd be a really helpful step. Anna, I would love for you to add your uh, perspective as well. Yeah, that's actually a great segue because I was going to start by taking a step back and, and sort of talking about what the patient experience looks like now. <laughs> and then mm. sort of, it, I think that'll help to illuminate what that nirvana looks like. Um Certainly, you know, arthritis is it's actually an umbrella of a hundred different kinds of disease. But um, for the purposes of this conversation, I'll focus on the autoimmune forms like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, where people are taking biologic medications. Sometimes the care is, is a lot trickier. Um, and, it, and there are a lot of comorbidities associated as well. Um, we've done a lot of surveys asking patients about that, um, what those com comorbidities look like, how many providers you typically see to manage your care. We are talking about chronic diseases here. So these are folks who require really lifelong, consistent access to care, right? So not your passive healthcare consumer, um, but an active healthcare patient. And the average is about two, well, actually the range is, is really from two to 10 plus um, providers, but the average is kind of in the three to four range. So thinking about that, you're seeing three to four providers regularly just to manage your arthritis in addition to any other providers you see. Um, we did a patient panel recently where somebody called uh, them their kind of collection of ists, like your rheumatologist, your orthopedist, your et cetera, internist, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's very common. Um, the diagnostic piece is really important. I think that the ideal patient experience starts with quick diagnosis, which is not unfortunately um, always the case. There's a lot of data that shows if you can get diagnosed before 12 weeks after symptom onset, your pain and function are dramatically different than if you have a delayed diagnosis. So that's key. Then you're getting on the right treatment, which can also be very difficult. There's a pretty high failure rate. Um, autoimmune diseases are kind of, they're very tricky. Um, there's no um, sort of magic eight ball that tells you which treatment is going to work for you. There's a lot of classes of drugs. Um, and the, it's about 77% is that kind of primary failure rate on a biologic. So oftentimes you've got to try two or three 
And it's a process. It's not like you try one today, fails tomorrow, and try the second one the next day. Um, it's months and months, you know, of time. And then, of course, once you get on therapy and it's working for you and you feel like you, quote, get your life back, uh, you want to maintain access, right, and keep your care coordinated. So really, the ideal patient technology experience, um, and this, is again, is based on years of data collection, um, focus groups, roundtables, and other things to kind of distill down. It would be, and this is really pie in the sky, I recognize, but there's a one-stop shop patients can utilize to coordinate all their care across all providers, payers, and pharmacists. Um, providers are able to coordinate among each other so that each uh, provider has a holistic picture of all the patient's conditions when prescribing treatment. Um, I know that you're working with your orthopedist on this or your, you know, primary care physician on, on, on that. And therefore, I think this is what, you know, your, your ideal sort of arthritis treatment should look like. Prior auth and step therapy are streamlined. Exceptions, requests, and appeals are processed expeditiously, if not immediately. Patients have full transparency into out-of-pocket costs and any utilization management protocols at the time of the prescribing um, uh, so that they know exactly what's going on. They and their provider can have a conversation about it. They have all of the information at hand. Um, and not last, but I'll just say last for now, um, but not least, is provider directories are up to date um, and easy to utilize. You know exactly who's in network, what the wait times are, and where to go for what. So, so true. So it really seems that, you know, for Nirvana in patient experience, it's seamless and effective communication, patients being able to access everything they need to and their doctors as well. Personalized care, people really be, being able to take into account the, the patient and the care partner's personal unique needs. Uh, patient empowerment through data and interoperability, really being able to have access to that own data to be able to actively participate. And then, of course, reducing that administrative burden um, and really streamlining those administrative tasks that, you know, that are so burdensome in, in healthcare. So I'd love to kind of dive into this next question and have um, Dr. Nicole start, you know, what's preventing patient experience nirvana? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So I can say a lot on this topic, but um, the first thing I want to start out by saying is that um, when you need to engage healthcare. Um, you call your doctor's office, and if anybody has ever called their doctor's office, you can't get anyone on the phone, right? So you get a phone tree, and that is is a very difficult task to navigate when you're an older individual. You may have hearing difficulties or vision difficulties, so even getting an appointment is difficult. You have to figure out how to navigate through that phone tree to try to get somewhere to leave a message because almost invariably nobody answers the phone. So that's difficult. And even, um, you know, when, when COVID happened and we had to transition care from, you know, in office or in hospital care to trying to care for people remotely, it became quite obvious that, you know, there's a whole population of older individuals that, do not have access to internet. They do not have access to devices. And even those that have internet or devices, they weren't able to engage the technology. They couldn't figure out how do you download an app to engage, uh, to get a doctor, to get access. So a lot of the care was provided by telephone. So I think if those things could be easier, it would be much easier for you know our constituents. And I, I will say though, there's been some positives um, devices like, um, and I don't advocate any specific device, but um, I'll just use the term Alexa. 
So a lot of individuals have been using that type of technology to remain in the home. The Alexa type device um, can give medication reminders. Um, there are um, fall detectors. So if a patient or an individual falls, uh, you know, it can alert uh, EMS to call someone. And so those types of technology are very helpful, but it's still very difficult uh, to navigate the system to even get into engage healthcare. And that's a significant challenge. So, so, so true. Andrew, I'd love to turn that to you as well. Um, you know, what's preventing this patient experience nirvana? Sure. Well, I think, you know, what Anna and Dr. Colvin talking about also is there's kind of two elements of the experience. It's not just the one-off interaction with a piece of technology. It's also everything that's going on when you're not interacting with it. And I think the sharing of medical records, the communication between providers, that flow of inner, you know, the interoperability flow of data is extremely important. Um, ARP is really trying to focus a lot though on those interactions and through better design and how the person actually does engage and experience that technology on the front end. And I think what, you know, Dr. Nicole is talking about and mentioning um, just trying to navigate is so important. You know, one of the biggest turnoffs, even if somebody wants to use the technology and is eager to use it, whether it's the portal or an app or whatever other device, they can be intimidated by it. And they think, oh, I don't understand this. I'm not even going to bother, or I'm going to do something wrong and I'm afraid to try it, even though it could prove beneficial. So we're really trying to focus on how can we design those products to get people to engage with them, to use them and use them properly also. And a lot of that does require thought in the design and development stage of who's using this product. For most of these things, in old, we consider older American 50 plus. A lot of these individuals have to be digital natives. Um, they may not have grown up per se with technology, but they certainly have a smartphone, they have a computer, they talk to their kids and grandkids on FaceTime, they have Alexa or whatever in their house. They know what to do, but there's still design elements that are not catered towards them. They're catered towards somebody that is online and connected 24-7. And that's not necessarily the right demographic that you're building for. Um, so we really do think that just the design of the device is extremely important in getting people to use it and to use it properly and to want to continue using it. Um, you know, we can be helpful. I can talk about different elements of that down the road, but certainly how we approach the technology and app itself is extremely important. That makes a ton of sense. Melissa, I would love to turn this question to you. You know, what else is preventing this patient experience nirvana? I think um, Andrew really hit on something that, um, that stuck out to me. And I think the developers need to ask themselves a specific question in terms of who are they building this for? Um, is it is it really for, with patients in mind or is it to collect data? Is it to help payers? Is it to help providers? Um, and I wonder um, whether or not developers are really building these types of technologies with patients, really listening to their concerns, really getting an understanding of that day-to-day -day of what it, what it means to live with a serious illness, a chronic condition, and, and understand that. I think 
once developers may like have an eye to seeing what that can look like, we might inch ourselves closer to, closer to that nirvana. But I do think we're still quite a ways away. I could not agree more. Could you imagine building a piece of technology and not even asking the user whatsoever if it would work for their life or how it would fit into their lifestyle and never including the insight of the the user? And in this case, you know, healthcare is our healthcare patients and care partners. They're consumers of healthcare. They should be included in the innovation process. Another thing I'd like to add to this conversation is privacy and security concerns. I know the patient community is really concerned about recent data breaches, cybersecurity attacks, you know, and may be hesitant to share sensitive health information because of that reason. So I think that's something that's keeping it, hold us, holding us back from the ultimate patient experience nirvana. Um, so really kind of fragmented healthcare systems, limited access to technology, like Dr. Nicole said, you know, resistance to change, you know, like Andrew and Melissa were getting to, and, and generally a lack of standardization is a serious issue, obviously, as well, kind of leaning into that fragmented healthcare system. And I also just want to add just a quick point that the reality for a lot of patients is accessing their, getting access to doctors, getting to see doctors on time, affording their medications. Sometimes these technologies, as much as helpful as they are, it's not top of mind. And so the reality is very different. I think that's a really important point. I just wanted to mention that as well. I had that written down in notes that um, this is very fresh in my mind because we just two days ago had a patient panel where we were talking about treatment adherence and this was not intended, but a lot of the conversation went to the place of provider availability. Even people in, in urban areas where there's not quote shortage of providers still have difficulty getting access to the providers in a timely way where you're having to make appointments nine months in advance and God forbid something happens and you need to change it and you're looking at another nine months. Um, And so the the thing that they kind of kept checking me on was treatment adherence is is, is a great goal if you can even get to the treatment part in the first place, right? So I think that's really important. And then um, kind of another piece that I think is really critical to getting over whatever barriers exist um, is just general buy-in. You know, I think that each member, each stakeholder, it has to buy into the need for patients to have better coordinated, less fragmented care, which I think is a big barrier. Absolutely. Now, I'm interested in kind of diving in now on what emerging technologies have been most helpful for your members. You know, what are the perfect ingredients for a perfect patient experience technology and, and are they working in real life? Dr. Nicole, it looks like you want to answer that one. (laughs) Well, uh, and I started to say that. So there have been some technologies, you know, with uh, the invention of um, wearable devices. You know, um, we have patients uh, that monitor blood pressure at home, and they're more on top of it, you know, being outside of the healthcare system, monitoring for irregular heart rhythms. Um, you know, medication dispensers and reminders um, and uh, camera devices that can be in the home so that maybe the patient can stay living independently longer with support and someone watching, you know, a a child or uh, a sibling watching them from um, a different household. So those technologies have really been helpful 
um, to our constituents. I, I will say one of the uh, places that we struggle, I, I know we're talking about uh, good things, but, um, you know, EMRs are very helpful and no doubt that they make um, gathering data and using data much easier. But one of the areas we struggle is that there's still not a lot of um, built-in automatic um, EMR features when it comes to the dementia space. So, um, you know, we still need screening tools and assessment tools to be um, digitized. They're still pen and paper, and then someone needs to scan them in. So we still have more work to do there with the EMRs and, um, you know, development in that space. But I'll let my other panelists answer that question, because I, I think it's very important to talk about what is good versus what is not good. Absolutely. Andrew, let's go with you next. Sure, I, I'd agree. I think the consumer technologies the last several years have really bloomed and it's exciting to see what's possible and whether it's um, like remote patient monitoring technologies or uh, again, I'll use FaceTime as shorthand, but just the ability to reach a talk to a provider from the comfort and safety of your own home. Um, but there are some shortcomings. I think in the rush to get technologies onto the market, you know, oftentimes we lose sight of like, how do these interact together? What are we not capturing that we should? Um, I think with relation to like electronic medical records, one of the things that I, we've actually worked with Alzheimer's Association on a bit too, ARP, is including the family caregiver in a lot of that. Because if there's a tech, you know, a technological link or a, a electronic data link between the patient and the provider, sometimes the caregiver gets cut out of that communication or of that linkage. So how do we include the family caregiver in the EMR? Um, how do we give them the ability to maybe dial in to the call as well or participate remotely, even if the individual patient is in the doctor's office and it's not a telehealth visit? Can we get the caregiver to be engaged somehow um, as well? So I agree, I think the technology exists, it's there, it's certainly growing at a rapid pace, but we need to be deliberate in how we use it, how we you know, interact with it, how it interacts with each other. Um, and there's a lot of work and thought to be done in that regard. Anna, I'd love to turn this over to you to ask, you know, how has AI bled its way into the patient experience? Uh, you know, just kind of wondering if you have experience on you know, that, that side of things or if you have any thoughts or feelings about AI in the space. Well, it, it's relatively new. It's, it's, it's one of those interesting kinds. Of, there's a whole set of questions around that that I would be interested in, in flagging for, for a future patient roundtable. So I, I don't have anything really specific. However, what I would say is that I think that um, obviously working with our provider community, there's a whole set of questions about just, you know, clinical decision making and things like that that can be helpful or in some cases maybe not, but there's a lot to explore there. I think that could be really helpful. There's a lot around AI that I think that can be really helpful for aggregating patient data and helping us get to that more holistic kind of picture um, of what's going on with the patient. Um, in terms of patient usage of anything AI related, um, I, I my best guess based on previous conversations we've had with patients is that there's going to be a very healthy range of people's comfort level and interest in utilizing it. Um, we still have a lot of people in our community who prefer paper. You know, um, they still want the brochures and the pamphlets when they go to the provider office. Um, but then, of course, you have folks who want everything digitized and streamlined. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a pretty healthy range. And I think um, moving forward for anyone who's kind of in that space, like recognizing and being kind of respectful of that, um, that, 
you're going to have people on, on both ends of the spectrum is really important. Melissa, with the advent of ChatGPT and AI in the patient advocacy community, I'm sure everyone is abuzz on how this could potentially help. Uh, what are your thoughts? It's a it's a great point. I think personally, I you know have sort of seen just within the last six months just how our whole world has just kind of grown to adopt um, you know ChatGPT or other AI. Um, I think it's a mix of both um, exciting and scary. Um, I think there is, you know, something we have to consider, like much like Dr. Google, um, whether or not people would rely on AI to get their information and whether or not they know how to trust it. Um, I think there's, you know, certainly a lot of interest, but I think we still don't know all the answers. And so I think this, like the next couple months and over the next year, it would be very interesting to have more of these conversations with patients around how would these new technologies be helpful to you? And I think there really has to be education around using these as tools and maybe even priming developers to think of these as tools and not like the be all, like end all and like the answer, right? Um I would love to see AI integrated into an EMR and, you know, the minute, um, you know, a doctor says, okay, well, we need to refer you to this doctor um, for, you know, for these, for, you know, to answer some of these questions, like that can be done right away without that extra step of the patient having to find that or whether, whether determining whether someone's in network or out of network. Like, I do think there is a way that AI can help streamline a lot of those things. Um, and in addition, just to connecting with other doctors, connecting patients to the resources that can be really helpful to them. The one thing we hear from patients um, a lot is how they don't know where to go to find these resources. And it takes a lot of mental energy. And when you're sick, that's, it's a lot. Um, to find these things. And so if there's a way that AI can help direct people to, you know, if they're having trouble affording their medications, directing them to where they can go to get that kind of help, or if they need transportation assistance, you know, maybe connecting with um, a rideshare, like those are some maybe innovative ways um, that I think um, AI and can be helpful in the situation, but there, there are still some things that I think we, um, have to be prepared for that can be a bit a bit scary. Absolutely. Now, Andrew, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I think artificial intelligence is being used already in a lot of ways that the consumer isn't aware of or probably impacts them negatively. Unfortunately, um, we're experiencing and hearing more about like automated claims denials in insurance where. The artificial intelligence is programmed to make certain assumptions or do certain things, and it yields, unfortunately, very negative consequences for the individual and the consumer. We're also concerned about, you know, all this is based on algorithms and the old saying of, you know, the data put in is the data you get out. You know, how is this artificial intelligence reinforcing uh, biases and inequalities in a lot of the, uh, whether it's clinical diagnostics or um, others, you know, the what data is it using to make these determinations and how useful and valid is that? So 
we do have a lot to learn. It is really a, a new, even though it's been around for a long time, it's probably hit that threshold point where it's taking off um, and we don't know the true impact. So with any technology, yeah, it can be great or it could have really negative repercussions. Uh, and it already is starting to, in certain regards, where businesses or doctors rely on it too much to try to make things more efficient you know, the human factor gets dropped from it and you forget who you're actually doing this work for. Um, so that's what we're trying to guard against. So it sounds to me like we're really excited for consumer tech in, in healthcare and how it's really impacting care, hospital at home initiatives and uh, medical device, you know, personalized medicine and medical devices, you know, intelligent EHR APIs that could really make an impact, um, improved interoperability. And all of us, I have a question mark on AI. Dr. Nicole, what do you think on that? Um, well, I, I have two things that I would say. Um, I haven't really heard from too many individuals uh, at the consumer level using AI um, in regard to healthcare in the dementia space. Um, but what I will say is that uh, there is AI technology that's currently um developed that is running in the background of the EMR. So looking at um, uh, uh, like diagnoses in the chart um, and making assumptions about this person may be high risk for dementia and you may want to screen them. So I think as that technology evolves, um, that will be a good thing if it is accurate, is, you know, sensitive and specific. Um, but, uh, you know, where I see AI being used is, um, you know, physicians are using it to generate notes. So um, you can take a, a, an iPad or a device into the patient interaction and uh, the, the technology can listen to the visit and generate a note. So it saves time. Um, and when you're talking about limited access to healthcare clinicians, you know, if you can, you know, see the patient, generate the note uh, to document it and then move on to the next individual, it makes you much more efficient. So um, it'll, it, you know, it remains to be seen how and where this technology is going to go. And I'm hoping it's going to be for the benefit, but uh, we'll see as time goes on. It does seem to be that the benefit initially will be just for content generation as a starting point, kind of like uh, Melissa said, Dr. Google, where you would just start to do research or develop initial content that you then work off of with the understanding that none of your health information is safe when you're using <laughs> AI, at least from an open AI or a chat GPT situation. Um, so you have to be careful about uh, patient health information in that sense. So I'm wondering kind of as we move on, first I want to say to anyone that has any questions, feel free to throw those in the chat now. Are there any regulations proposed or final that can really turn the tide for patients? You know, we have the information blocking rule, No Surprises Act, you know, what regulations are you tracking? Anna, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I mean, those both are important. We did um, educational pieces on both of those. It's hard to know what the impact of that is though for any given patient, because I, you know, I think if I'm a patient and I'm receiving a one pager on information blocking, on the information blocking role, my first question is going to be, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this? How is this really going to help me? Like, what's the, what's the why? Where's the why? Um, and it's just one little piece of an overarching kind of need for patients to have kind of better access to information to make more informed decisions. Um, 
so that's one piece I, I think um, that's just maybe an umbrella for, for thinking about this more holistically. But then most recently, we are really um, optimistic, maybe is the right word, about the um, prior auth and API rule uh, that we certainly submitted comments on. I'm sure most everyone on this call did as well, um, that we're very eager to see what the final rule says. But um, I think that, you know, in reading the proposed rule that CMS put out um, around, you know, patient-facing APIs, um, the provider to provider, payer to payer, the, you know, the, their reasoning and rationale throughout that proposed rule is exactly what we're getting at here with this panel to better coordinate care, um, more transparency, more expeditious review, prior auth obviously being kind of infused throughout it. Um, and, and not just, you know, Prior, you know, timelines around prior auth and things like that, but also like more transparency to the patient and, um, you know, the denial rates, what went into that, you know, just it's really helpful. I think people forget that the, that even though a lot of those processes are done between the provider and the payer, the patient is an integral part of that. They're often triangulating. They're on the call with the provider. They're on the call with the payer. Did so-and-so talk to you and all this stuff. And so the, the, the patient really wants and needs to have access to that information as well. So it could be a game changer if done right. I think I would say one shortcoming is it doesn't include prescription drugs, um, which I think is much needed. Um, and, and so obviously that's something that we'll be pushing for. But there's a lot in there that gets at what we're talking about here in a much more comprehensive way than a lot of these uh, kind of, you know, smaller, more narrow um, rules or proposals we've seen in the past. Absolutely. It does seem that, you know, electronic, electronic prior authorization will really help reduce the time and effort required to obtain some of that approval necessary for treatments and medications. And it's been exciting to see e-prescribing really taking off and really having an impact, but maybe we'll get to a point where we can do more automation in that space. That'd be really exciting to see. Uh, does anyone else have anything else to share? Well, I agree. Prior authorizations are... Um, you know, a difficult uh, navigation. I mean, our every doctor's office that I know of has someone that just handles prior authorizations, right? And it really uh, limits care and not necessarily um, from the prior authorizations that are rejected, but the time it takes to do them um, and the, the resources it takes to do them from medications to diagnostic studies. In the rules change, uh, you know, so where I may have been prescribing a medication to a patient for years, now this year it requires a prior authorization. And they're not particularly um, controlled medications, but they were just standard medications that required a prescription. So this is very frustrating um, to the patients and uh, and the healthcare clinicians, you know, I, and it, it almost puts the patient in the middle between the payer and the clinician, right? So um, you, they're asking us to put in a prescription or a study or, you know, whatever the treatment plan is that we decided on, and they don't understand the delay. And, you know, why is my medication not at the pharmacy? Or why can't I get that MRI scan that you said I needed? Um, and then, you know, it kind of puts them in the middle because there really uh, is is very little peer-to-peer -peer interaction um, to get those things changed. It's more of a peer-to-peer -peer discussion from what the payers are telling me. So it is very frustrating all around, and that is a significant, um, you know, uh, complication of healthcare today. 
Melissa, I'd love to hear your insight on the patient access side of the, the house, because I feel like that impacted the patient advocacy community probably more than anybody. <laughs> so I'd love to hear, you know, you know, the, the data liberation day, what that day was like for you uh, when, when that happened. I, I wish I could share a bit more. Um, my role within my organization is specifically around grassroots advocacy and not necessarily on the policy side. Um, I think what I will say is it's translating that so patients can understand what it means for them. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's in our policy circles. We it, it is a big deal, but for them to really understand is it's a whole other um, whole other area. And so um, roundtables, these types of conversations in terms of saying, here's what's happening on Capitol Hill, here's some regulations that passed and how it can impact you is really how we're focused, what we're focused on. It really wasn't the sort of liberation that one would think, um, but it's educating them. And then hopefully what we, in my role, I oversee our volunteer network, educating our volunteers, and then hopefully that sort of extends and people are more aware that you know, there's transparency there now and here's where you need to go. So I don't know if that was the answer you're looking for, but absolutely. You know, that makes a ton of sense. It, it does make a ton of sense because it's it, at one hand, it's happening at Capitol Hill, but is it being translated to the consumer? And at the end of the day, if we're talking about patient experience, we have to be um, translating to the patient and to the care partner that their records are their own and they are able to have access to it. While there are many exceptions, unfortunately, still, uh, the, the hope here is that it will really empower patients to be better collaborators in their care, having access to this information at the, at the touch of their hands. And then, of course, informing them of the safety and the responsibility that comes with that as well. I'd love to dive now into hospital at home just quickly. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of hospital at home? Pro, con, in terms of patient experience, uh, give me your insights. Uh, Anna, I'd love to go with you first. <laughs> um, I, I don't actually really have any deep insights on this particular question. Um, I would maybe um, kind of go back to something I said earlier that um, there's such a broad range of types of patients and needs and, and desires and preferences and trying to design a system that kind of meets them where they are, and, and um, you know, that kind of allows them to streamline care and whether that's hospital at home or something else, um, that there's just that kind of respect for that and that the patient is part of the conversation. Yeah. Dr. Nicole would love to hear your perspective. Yeah. Oops. Okay. Um, uh, I apologize. What's the question again? I... Oh, sorry. I was just talking about hospital at home. Oh, the cat yes, is yes, out yes. of the bag. What do you feel? Because that, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot being talked about hospital at home on Capitol Hill right now. Is there going to be reimbursement for it? Are they going to continue it? You know, is this the best thing for patients? Is this even what we want? If, if all patients can have access, is it something we even should be considering? What are your thoughts, you know, on that? Yes. I, so I'm, I'm a strong believer in hospitals at home, right? The care. So we're all most comfortable in our home and, uh, no matter who you ask, no one wants to go into 
a different living situation, whether it be assisted living or skilled nursing facility. So receiving care at home with support services is ideal if it can be managed safely um, and the patients can can thrive there. So um, I do think with technology and getting these um, you know, different services in the home, I think it's ideal. I think I'm I'm definitely a supporter of that. Yeah, Andrew, I'd love to for you to share about this uh, hospital at home program that you have at the AARP. Sure. Well, AARP has been very engaged in this, and I put in the chat a link to a letter we sent to CMS and HHS on this issue with our mainly our questions for it and how we can improve the program going forward. I unfortunately didn't write this letter, so I'm probably not the best person to speak to it. Um, but we do have information, not only this letter, but if you want to search AARP.org, we do have information about the program um, and related programs about keeping the person living independently and at home and what other services can be provided. Uh, so we've been supportive, uh, continue to be supportive, but we do think refinements and improvements can be made from an organizational standpoint. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for for being here. Thanks to Weedy for having us here. Thanks to all the panelists for participating. I'm going to turn this one back to you now, Michael. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT communities connect, collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.